Bienvenido. Ahora estás escuchando el Paseo Podcast, donde destacamos la historia de, por y para la comunidad puertorriqueña. Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smyzer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Now, I know last week I said we were going to take a break for the holidays, but I could not pass up the opportunity to talk to the two guests I have on today's episode. After today, we definitely will be taking a short break until the new year. But today, I am joined by Adriana Colón Adorno y Gabriela Morales Nieves from the Yale Endowment Justice Coalition. Their student organization, along with many others, were responsible for organizing a protest to bring attention to and demand the canceling of Harvard and Yale's holdings in Puerto Rico's debt and divestment from fossil fuels. This show of solidarity was especially unique as it took place during a historic rivalry football game between Harvard and Yale, two Ivy League universities on November 23rd. After people took over the field, there was no choice but to end the game right then and there to listen to what activists had to say. I should mention that Yale and Harvard are not alone in these types of investments, as many higher ed institutions utilize similar financial practices. However, using Yale as an example, they hold close to a billion dollars in Puerto Rico's $74 billion debt. That means they will profit exponentially from the crippling debt of La Isla, a debt which has had little to no transparency in how it was taken on. Now, if you paid attention to a majority of news coverage on this protest, you will notice that climate change gets the big headline with barely any mention at all of Puerto Rico's debt. Why is that? I'll let you decide. But what you could not find anywhere else is right here waiting for you on the Paseo podcast. We are going to speak with Adriana and Gabriela via Zoom video conferencing about Puerto Rico's debt, divestment, what the day of the protest was like, and how they were able to mobilize and organize so many different people to protest in solidarity for the same cause. Let's jump into the interview. Adriana, Gabriela, welcome to the show. What should our listeners know about you? Hi, so my name is Adriana. I'm a senior um, undergraduate student at Yale University. I'm from Puerto Rico and grew up mostly in the Hartford area. And I'm an environmental studies major and a long-term member of the Yale Endowment Justice Coalition. Hi, my name is Gabriela Morales. I am from Naranjito, Puerto Rico. I am a master's student, second year at the Yale School of Forestry, and I'm doing a master's in forestry. And I've been part of the Endowment Justice Coalition for way less than others. <laughs> um, happy to have finally joined. 
your organization has been quite busy. Why did the Harvard-Yale protest have to happen? Yeah, so one, I mean, one of the reasons specifically why the coalition wanted to utilize the game is because it is a super important event for both institutions. They benefit greatly from it. It's televised nationally. Yale brings back so many alumni. It's a huge networking event. So on top of it being a place that gets a lot of attention from students also, you know, you just have thousands of students in the stadium. Um, it also is a space that a lot of administrative and alumni and national eyes are on. Um, so using that event is a way that people can't ignore the very important messages that we're trying to send. What well, can you speak to this idea that, that some people might say, well, it's sports. We don't want to think about these things outside of, of a football game. We just want to turn on the TV, watch a game. We don't want <laughs> politics involved in that. Like what, are you, like, what do you say to people that respond to what you're doing in that way? Well, I think that right now we are in an unprecedented time in terms of climate change and things that are happening around the world. And I think it's a huge statement to disrupt a game like this because it's not like any other time. And and we are trying to bring attention to something that is unprecedented. So we, I guess, thought the, the, the logic behind it was to do something unprecedented in something like a Yale Harvard football game, which is so famous and happens every single year hmm. because it's not a normal year. And that's, we, we thought that it would be a great space to bring that kind of attention because it's disrupting the status quo um, of what is normal. So would you say, was that one of the desired outcomes of this to not go about things as business as usual, to actually stop and think about other things in the world besides maybe some of the things that allow us to quote unquote escape from reality? Yeah, um, I think one of the one of the biggest and most exciting things that we are seeing now um, in people's reactions to stuff is because it disrupts business as usual it disrupted people's like you know everyday life and it also made a lot of headlines so it forces even people that didn't see it um it really pushes people to stop being quote unquote neutral. And so many people now that have never discussed this before, some people who never talk about climate change, who never talk about climate justice or endowments and that kind of stuff um, are now really kind of having to state their opinion and kind of pick a side, even though that's an aggressive way to put it. Um, and a lot of people are having to come out now and really say either I am for divestment or against it. And even if they didn't have an idea of what they believed before, it's causing a lot of people to reflect. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the biggest things that we're seeing. A lot of alumni are coming out and really um, in huge numbers supporting the action and in more general supporting um, the divestment movement. So that's been really exciting. Yeah, and it also has helped people to get more informed and, 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 and to know a lot of people don't know about um, Yale's investments or really don't think about um, what 
the indemnity it's used for. So I guess it, it's it's kind of a way to begin and open the door for people who, who don't know about it and to get more informed about what is happening. So you hit on a couple of really good points. But one thing I wanted to point out just for our listeners, so this isn't just Yale and Harvard students. This is a large, this is a broader community. So we're not just talking about currently enrolled students. We're talking about alumni. We're talking about other allies. Are there any other nonprofits that have shown support or any other organizations that have shown support or has it been kind of people within the broader and Yale Harvard communities? Yeah, so like we mentioned, it's um, the Yale Endowment Justice Coalition is made up of many different student groups. So there's Fossil Free Yale, which is has historically just been straight up fossil fuel divestment. There's also the Spiritu Boricua, which is the Puerto Rican student group. So I'm also part of that. There's also New Haven groups, New Haven Rising, which is kind of demanding more, um, a better relationship between Yale and New Haven in their hiring practices, in their tax paying practices or lack thereof, you know, support from Sunrise and other non-Yale groups. And then also on top of that, alumni and important people in the world of investments and economists and environmentalists and climate scientists. Uh, So it's a big network of people pushing for more ethical and sustainable and smarter investments with yields, you know, $30 billion endowment. I love hearing that there's this many people involved. I love hearing about different groups coming together in solidarity, working towards justice together, you know, mano y mano. Adriana, you had mentioned the word divestment. Um, for our listeners that don't know what divestment is, can you give us a little insight into what what is divestment and why is that significant for you? Do you have another word? I can follow up. Or whoever, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so <clears throat> divestment is, I think it has two parts. There is just the very straightforward taking out your investments in a specific asset or stock or fund manager or that kind of stuff um but there is also not just an economic side there's also a social political side to stuff where true divestment also requires a public statement on why you changed your investments um the work and ideologies that are going into it um to make it very clear that it's not just about money, it is also about social change and what is ethical and acceptable to make profits from. So it's, yeah, kind of a a two-part change. And I think, um, so right now, part of the, the broader demands is for Yale to cancel their investments in the Puerto Rican debt and also their investments in fossil fuel industries. And Yale, in the the endowment's official website, they talk about how they are not obligated or it's under a legal framework ethical for them to make um, such investments and they're not, you know, um, prohibited from making such investments. And we as students are kind of pushing further in terms of like how it is a justice issue. And even if they are allowed under a legal framework to make such investments. Um, we're just pushing beyond that in, into a broader social justice um, and climate justice issue of, of why we think those investments shouldn't happen. 
in the first place. Yeah, can you, can you share a bit more about how Harvard and Yale are connected to Puerto Rico's debt? I mean, you t- you've touched on it, but like, kind of break that down for people that aren't necessarily sure how investments, uh, how the market works. Um, because saying that you're, you can legally do this as an institution, yeah, you can legally do it, but that doesn't mean it's ethical. Um, exactly. So can you like can you share a bit more on what can you break that down? What's that relationship like? Yeah. What is so, that? Um, institutions connected to Puerto Rico's debt. Yeah. So, in it's I, I think one one of the issues is that it's made purposely very complicated and convoluted and hard to understand in a way that then makes people think, oh, I shouldn't get involved with this conversation, you know, I'm not an economist. And that's something that we're really trying to push back against. Um, But to like very oversimplify it, um, Puerto Rico's public debt is kind of the result of um, very large, um, often corrupt bank loans that were made um, that have incurred a lot of interest. And now Puerto Rico has a public debt of about 73 billion dollars um that that fund managers banks and individuals and institutions can purchase a part of the debt um through cofina bonds that then you own part of the debt so when puerto rico is paying it back they are paying it back to you and you're also making money off of it because the debt is acquiring interest with crazy crazy yeah crazy yeah crazy high amounts of interest in a way that is just insane because this is tied to people's pensions it is tied to puerto rico's um, public education and schools and healthcare and infrastructure so it's not just you know like big banks making money it's very intricately tied to people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Yale and Harvard are invested in hedge funds and fund managers that own large parts of Puerto Rican debt. Um, one of the most prominent ones is Baupost, that is um, known to be one of the largest owners of Puerto Rican debt. So the demand um, in the Endowment Justice Coalition is that Yale instructs those fund managers to forgive the portion of the debt that they own, um, which is slightly different than the divestment in fossil fuels, um, because in fossil fuels, it would just be straight up divestment. But for the Puerto Rican debt component, it would be to keep those divestments, but forgive the portion of the debt that they own because it was because the Puerto Rican public debt was created in very, um, in, in very unethical ways because of the power imbalance between the United States and Puerto Rico. Also, um, I think part of, of why the, that sh- debt should be canceled is because <laughs> the de- even though it's, it's mentioned that it's like they're under like a legal framework where they're allowed to the the debt itself has not been audited so it's not even known how much of the debt has been acquired illegally and technically if some part of the debt has been acquired illegally the Puerto Rico doesn't have to pay it mm-hmm. technically so so under that under those circumstances really there is not 
no, I, we think no ethical base in terms of like making those types of investments, which in Puerto Rico, if you go to the other side, right now, the state is prioritizing um, paying off that, that debt instead of dedicating itself to um, education and rebuilding post Hurricane Maria, especially, um, and has resulted actually in these austerity measures that have resulted in the closing of more than 200 public schools, huge budget cuts to the University of Puerto Rico, and tuition raises on top of that, um, threats to the public health uh, systems, threats to pensions, um, and to um, power uh, costs, etc. So, so really, that's, that's why we think um, that this debt should be, this portion should be canceled. I mean, this is a really important piece of this, I think. We're talking about a debt that's accrued since the 1970s to now. And who knows? We've seen with uh, Ricardo Rosselló protests. We don't know just that administration alone or the administrations before, before his like. And what debt were they taking on that then who had to pay for that? That wasn't the people with money on the island. That wasn't people that had a certain level of affluency. The people that get hit with that debt are the working class people. So that's your roads that you're driving to, to pick up groceries in or you're walking through. That's your water system. That's your, your education. I mean, especially when you get hit by a hurricane. Yeah, I think one thing to highlight is uh, a huge part of the coalition in our like theory of change, the way that we organize the coalition itself is to really step away from like a savior narrative. Um, You know, this coalition is not saving these communities or trying to speak for them. It's really elevating the voices and highlighting the work that is already being done. So we stand in solidarity with the um, all the amazing protests at the University of Puerto Rico. Um, we recognize our situations are very different. I think protests in Puerto Rico are, you know, met with much harsher measures. Um, students get arrested in much more violent ways. Uh, the police activity is much more brutal. So we we do our work in recognition of the work that is already being done in the front lines of these communities. Um, and I think we in no way try to take credit for, for you know, all the changes happening, but we're just trying to do our part. After seeing that gigantic protest in Puerto Rico, I mean, we're talking about a million Puerto Ricans on an island of three million, and that's just everybody that can make it to the capital. <laughs> we were actually both there. Oh <laughs> we my were gosh, there can I have you back on the show to tell me what that was like? That's like amazing. <laughs> wow. I mean, wow. Okay. That's awesome. That's, wow. Can you, can really quickly, what was that experience like? Well, I guess um, I was actually during the summer in Mayagüez. Um, so I actually, which was really cool. I got to be part of the protests kind of like on the Western coast because a lot of like media coverage and the focus tends to be like on the metro area in Puerto Rico. So it was really cool to be um, part of like people who like didn't have access to go to the, to the city, it, including myself. Um, so so it was it was really cool there was a moment where actually like buses were organized to like bus people over to to san juan um for the protests um but when we couldn't make it we would just like organize um in in mayaguez and like you know stop like route num- n- numero dos road which like goes all around the entire island um and just completely paralyze it so that to stop traffic and, and, and things like that. So it was, it was, it was truly great um, to see.
Ricky. And then eventually, like, when Ricky um, announced his, like, um, resignation, resignation, (laughs) thank you. Um, It was really powerful to be in, like, downtown Mayaguez, where people just, like, came off from the streets to meet in the town square um, to listen um, over the speakers, his message. So it it was really powerful. Yeah, I was uh, staying with family for the summer. So my family is in San Lorenzo, a bit south of San Juan. Um, San Lorenzo. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Whenever I meet someone from San Lorenzo, I'm like, yeah, I'm from there too. Anyway, sorry. um, But I think just being a part of the, that specific, uh, the largest protest, Mm -hmm. um, you could feel the energy like all around you. You could like, really physically feel it and it was amazing um because i think it broke down this this stereotype that like oh puerto ricans don't care they don't understand their situation um all this kind of like really negative things that sometimes you even hear from other puerto ricans um but just from you know a lot of different people um and you could just see how much people care about their communities care about each other care about their future the future of their children um yeah and really using their voices and saying we demand better of our government we demand better of of this community in general um and i think it was a really beautiful empowering and really uplifting experience i think it was also a good refresher of like how democracy works outside of you know every four years in by voting Mm -hmm. and and it was a good refresher about how actually taking to the streets works um, and type direct action actually works. Um, and, and it was a good refresher for Puerto Ricans, but it was a good refresher, I think, worldwide. Um, and yeah, it was the first time in history that, that we, we organized in a way that, that resulted in the resignation of a governor, um, after his actions. And, and it's just, I guess, um, an entire generation had not seen that because, I guess like the last time something that with that big of a magnitude happened like during Vieques when we mm-hmm. when we forced the Marina to leave. Um and like a lot of people hadn't even seen that yeah. or witnessed that. So so it was it was it was truly powerful. It's almost like a wider awakening of organization on the island where people are it's not so much in our own little pueblos or cities or towns talking about this stuff. It's actually getting people from across the island and centralizing that voice. To actually hold power accountable it's it's fascinating i've never seen that in my lifetime either even a lot of students in the endowment justice coalition over the summer you know in group chats were really paying attention to what was happening in puerto rico um and definitely this action that happened at harvard yale drew a lot of inspiration from the protests over the summer um so you know also learning from these communities um is is a huge part of what we're trying to do and and just yeah, 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 paying attention to them. Yeah, I think what Adriana mentioned was really great about this just being an action in solidarity, and I guess like using the platform of where we are at Yale to where Yale is directly tied to Puerto Rico, but it, it it's not on top of or or it's it's in solidarity with current movements that have been happening already for years in in Puerto Rico with with groups like La Jornada Sacabaron las Promesas and the students and different labor unions that are directly being affected. So I think I think what you mentioned was really great. Yeah. Yeah. So Adriana, you mentioned uh, group chat, people paying attention to the the protests on La Isla over the summer. 
walk us through like the general communication, the organization that was involved. Because with the Harvard Yale game protest, I mean, you're talking about two different schools, multiple different organizations. Can you walk us through, or either you or, or Gabriela, walk us through how were you able to get everyone organized for this effort? Yeah, I think one of the strengths of the coalition is that it's non-hierarchical. So there is not a president, there's not, you know, people in charge. Um, I'm a senior, but I don't have any more authority or um, importance than someone who's joining for the first time in a meeting. Um, and we really emphasize that to kind of break down power dynamics within the coalition. And then that also leads into the ability to grow and recruit and facilitate outreach um, through really genuine, um, organic ways. So it doesn't have to be, you know, groups of people coming and joining. A lot of the time, it's just one individual person reaching out to someone in their class and being like, hey, I noticed you're involved in this. Can you tell me a little more about it? Or someone's roommate or someone's neighbor um, and really growing one by one in just really natural ways because people can feel that this is the right thing to do. They can feel that it's important. Um, so that's kind of one of the ways that we get the massive numbers that we do um, because of the really empowering way that we organize. And then with with Harvard, you know, um, very similar. It's also just logistically, it's a lot of phone calls, um, several meetings every week, people putting in so much of their personal time, um, which is really important to recognize. This is a lot of student labor um, on top of academics, on top of jobs that people have. Um, it's just a lot of organizing and people chipping in where they can. Um, really, really intentional distribution of work so that no one gets burned out. And just really large collaborative community organizing. So how does that, so I, I, my familiarity with most student orgs is there is this hierarchy where there's officer positions. So if I'm understanding you correctly, so with the Yale Endowment Justice Coalition, as an example, that, so there's no president, there's no VP, secretary, no. treasurer, no. none of that. Nothing. Nothing. Interesting. <laughs> um, which I think freaks people out because then they're like, oh, you, that can't function. That's impossible. Um, but I've actually seen it is one of the most successful organizations I've ever been a part of because then everyone involved feels empowered to step up and work on this little thing, send this email, make this call, um, volunteer to organize this meeting, uh, facilitate this meeting next week. And people, everyone has the power to step up and help out. And it's worked beautifully, I think. And, and it, it, I think it's really important for people to learn how to organize that way. But yeah, but it works and it's actually very, it runs very smoothly, runs very organized, but it just goes to show that we don't need to work within this framework of hierarchies and bureaucracy and that kind of thing. Kudos to y'all for making that work. I haven't seen many success stories with that makeup, um, but y'all are showing that, that that's totally possible. You just have to have that, uh, what would you say, like, is it a mindset that you have to kind of break and and traditional yeah. view of how an organization is built. We, we emphasize it to everyone that joins um to always ask questions um you know there's kind of a set of community of values that we all agree to and that we agree to embody in our 
organizing um and then it you know it works one rant one just last question on just org on the organization of your student org how do you how do you handle like disagreements like if 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 there's a group of students within the organization that want to go this direction but you want to go in the other another group wants to go in another direction like how do you how do you reconcile those disagreements yeah um or is everybody like on the same page and that doesn't yeah. really no i think yeah. i think it's it's important to address i think people are on the same page of why we are doing this the the systems of oppression that we are working against um so you know climate uh so-called climate apartheid where poor communities people of color are going to be the ones to be affected first we are all in agreement on that that that's what we're fighting against we're staying in solidarity um and then also a commitment to non-hierarchical organizing so just some many different community values that we are all on the same page about and then because of that i think we are able to have very open very honest conversations and discussions um everyone is encouraged to explain you know why they want this over this or why they think this would be a better idea um, and we really just very sincerely talk through all of that and come to agreements that everyone can feel comfortable with. Yeah, and I, I only, and I only asked this Adriana and Gabriela because I'm thinking of other student orgs that may want to use your organization's model and implement that in their own student org um, or just organizations in general. Um, so, so, so if I'm hearing you correctly, community guidelines, everybody agrees on these community guidelines and that allows you to kind of spark the conversation with that base. Mm -hmm. right. Cool. Um, going back a little bit to organizing everyone in this effort. So if I was hearing you correctly, it's a very organic relationship building between either one or two people or a group of people from one organization or one school to another, just kind of being open to building relationships with new people and working towards a common goal. But first kind of starting at the peer to peer point. Is that fair? And, and I think it, it's important to mention is that this has mainly been organized by undergraduate students mm -hmm. who have been so dedicated and so impressive in in their organization, like like you just heard Adriana explain, um, I come for from um, a graduate school, and I think it's kind of a, like a different flow in terms of how to organize um, people because we're here for a, like a shorter amount of time. Um, so I guess I I was I personally at at my school organized people just. By, by word of mouth and do you want to come with me to this meeting and people I think people in terms of of what is happening a lot of people are on board once they understand what is happening and and kind of the consequences um, and I think a big part of of informing is the teachings that the endowment justice coalition organizes um, um, which I went to one and I was mind blown by just that, that information and and it's been really admirable the work that the students have put into actually besides their schoolwork and any jobs that they might have and other commitments they have put into doing research into learning because like Adriana explained earlier like they make it very convoluted and 
probably purposely confusing for people to understand and get involved. And they have put in so much work in terms of just like teasing out and just like making it very easy to understand and a big part of, of recruitment and and people getting involved have been the teachings that they have organized in different schools and and and, and different classrooms for students to just come in and sit down and learn. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think in, in my part has, um, on my end at least, has been just like word of mouth and people that I, yeah, just like have invited to, to meetings with the Endowment Justice Coalition and, and, and it has been very easy for, for people to integrate um, yeah. and get engaged. I don't want to oversimplify what you just said, Gabriela, but one of the one of the key takeaways I'm taking from what you both have shared, um, a lot of this is not only relationship building, but having taking the time to have conversations with people, whether that's one on one, whether that's in a teach in, uh, just taking that time to kind of share that knowledge that you have come across or been informed on and passing that on to people and giving people the space to to kind of ask questions and dig a deep a bit deeper. Yeah, yeah. And, then and that guess, just yeah. Yeah, that just goes to show like students' commitments to and to I guess holding up the university to higher standards and, and what they believe is 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 just. And I think just a quick addition to that kind of going off mentioning the institution, it also breaks down this misconception that because Yale and Harvard are these big research institutions, everything they promote is correct and um, you can't question anything they say or publish. Um, and it's really just helping break down that fear or the uncomfortable feeling that people have about questioning powerful institutions. Um, and we're really sending that message that you are allowed to question them. You are allowed to ask hard questions and force answers from them um, because they are not these perfect institutions. They are, they are communities and we are part of them and they're a part of us. So we are allowed to hold them accountable. Yeah. Yeah. And right now, like Yale endowment, the way the endowment at Yale is, is managed is actually used as, as an example for other institutions. So we think that knowing that Yale is in that position, I guess, well, I guess the, the, the hope, the best outcome would be to set that example in a way that it can, you know, multiply into other institutions to follow along with, with those kind of higher standards for, for how an endowment is, is managed. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. 
Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. questions I have. Can you walk us through game day? Just walk us through that day of the protest. I mean, what was it like taking over the field? Yeah. Um, it was, we all got together, you know, um, originally 148 people were the ones who have gone through trainings, gone to um, specific strategy meetings on how to do it. So that was the base number of people that we expected. Everything above that was people that joined once we got out onto the field. Um, but that was 148 people who were committed to sitting for arrest. So going into this day, the day of going onto the field, 148 people knew that there was the potential of if they stepped onto the field and started protesting that they'd probably all end up in, in jail for the night. Yeah. Or for however yeah, long they for, get, they get yeah, out. Um, so, and that was um, a mix. So probably about... Um, 100 Yale, uh, probably about 115 or so Yale students, and then the, the rest were Harvard students, um, just because it was, of course, more difficult for them to organize from Cambridge. Um, but we were all in the stadium bright and early, got good seats. We all got together that morning to like eat breakfast together as a community. Um, and then we got into the stadium, sat in our groups, and then um, through, you know, amazing collaborations with you know, having this network of people around the stadium were able to all uh, walk out onto the field at the same time in a very intentional, coordinated effort. Um, we were all terrified. <laughs> and um, my heart was racing, honestly. Yeah. Um, even though I've done several of these, I've done several sit-ins, several direct actions, um, I think I still get nervous every time. That's not something that goes away. You know, you don't take it for granted. Um, but then we all got out onto the field, locked arms and sat down, um, had our banners up uh, to really make our messaging clear. And once once you get to that point where you are all sitting together, you, you feel really secure um, and you remember why you're doing this, mm-hmm. all the planning that's gone into it and like why it's important. Yeah. Um, so, and you just, you know, you feel, you feel that energy there and all that community support and it's really amazing. Gabriela, what about you? I think Adriana described it really well. Um, yeah, so we, we it was very um, intentional in terms of like knowing what were the risks involved and and we had organized trainings in terms of like how to interact with people who might not be um, on board with what was happening and potential interactions with police um, to ensure kind of like the safest conditions for, for students and I think that was, that was truly great. Um, and then we were also like separated into different groups across the stadium in a way that I guess was not, I guess, obvious. <laughs> yeah. Um, truly great. I was nervous. I had never been to a football game in my entire life. I, they're, they're not good, popular. For many first game. That was my first experience at a football game ever. And I thought it was brilliant to, to, to have that be my first time. Um, and, and yeah, just, just, walking onto the field and sitting down and, and there was, I couldn't 
since we were all sitting down, I can see like how many people were surrounding me. And at a certain point I, I stood up really quickly to see, and it was just like a massive group of people. Um, it was really impressive to see. Um, we didn't, I guess I didn't expect that so many people that didn't know what was happening or what was being organized climbed down the stairs and joined in and sat down with us. Um, so it was hundreds, hundreds of people. Um, and it was, it was truly impressive um, to be a part of that. And, and yeah. And I think just one more really important note about the way that we organize, we recognize that different people have different levels of risk. So, you know, we recognize that um, black students involved have the most risk with interacting with the police. We recognize that, um, students who are visiting from other countries have different levels of risk with deportation. We recognize the risk of undocumented students of gender non-conforming people that might experience different kind of aggression from the police and from media. Yeah. So we very intentionally organize so that there are specific students that are trained to interact with the police. Mm -hmm. um, so that if the police approach anyone that's not comfortable with talking to them, we can say, I'm not going to talk to you. You can go talk to our police liaisons. Um, mm -hmm. So we we don't wow. pretend that there's not different levels of risk. Um, yeah. White students have much lower levels of risk. So we we put a lot of effort into organizing like that so that this kind of coalition and these actions are open to everyone and not just open to like, you know, rich white students. Right. Yeah. So we, we put a lot of effort into that. Police liaisons, I think, is a really good idea. Just knowing your rights and your like, what are the legalities involved? Not everybody knows that. So if you can have some point people that know their rights and can advocate for other people if their rights are being infringed upon, like what a great what a great idea to have point people. Something also very brilliant that was kind of very punctuated was the fact that some students were were not willing to risk arrest for their for their um for their specific reasons and they they had huge roles to play and they also were were incredibly supportive and 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 were I from the stands played a huge roles in, in, in encouraging um, people to support. Um, and that was, that was really great. So everybody that was involved, no matter what level of involvement they wanted to be a part of were, were a huge part of, of the effort, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Going back to the, the day of the game, at what point of the game did you decide to protest to get on the field? Um, right after the halftime performances. So yeah. the bands do shows um, and then right after that. So cool. after the performances and before the football players come back onto the field. So right after the halftime show, 148 people step onto the field. Um, was anybody was anybody arrested or did anyone try to stop you from getting on the field? It's kind of hard, um, I'd imagine, for security to stop 148 people coming on the field at the same time. Um, but yeah, did anybody try to, to stop y'all or arrest you? Yeah, I think people were already sitting down before people, I guess, security kind of realized what was happening. Um, but we have, as far as we understand, we have 42 people that were arrested and yeah, for disorderly conduct. Yes. Yeah. So just because of how many people joined in, like we said, hundreds of people, um, because of that, it did not go to original plans of like 148 people sitting down and getting arrested, mm -hmm. um, which is okay because the point is not to get arrested, just 
for show. The point is to send a message, and that happened. Um, so 42 people didn't end up getting citations because there were just so many people, and it actually stretched out into an hour, which was much longer than we expected. Um, and there was just so many people that the police couldn't even process everyone. Um, but yeah, so 42 people ended up getting uh, arrested for disorderly conduct and hundreds more were supporting. So it was really awesome. Um, for those that were arrested, are they, are they still dealing with, with, with like the legal fallout of that? Or, cause I remember, I thought I had seen the city council of King Cambridge that mm -hmm. they believe the charges should be dropped. Yeah, so that was really important. Um, the City Council of Cambridge uh, published an official resolution in support of the action and in, in support of all the people that participated. Um, there is a legal fund that um, we can share the link with you afterwards. Um, there is a legal fund to pay for the legal fees and to pay for the lawyers um, and support the students that did get arrested. But yeah, that will be something that we put a lot of organizing into afterwards to support those students, help with court dates, um, help with legal assistance and legal information, but yeah. Okay. We'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. With 148 students on the field, you said other people began to join in. Did you ever get a, a final a final total of how many people joined you on the field? Um, no, we haven't made any official estimates, but you can, you know, look at the big. pictures. You can look at the pictures yeah, and it's, yeah. you know, the field is filled from the, from like the 30 yard line to the 30 yard line, you know, it's like a massive, the majority of the field was just full of people packed in um, shoulder to shoulder. So I don't have an estimate for that, but hundreds of people. So. That's amazing. Cool. Well, last question I have for both of you and Gabriela, Adriana, whoever wants to answer, if you both want to answer this question. Um, just given the national recognition you've received from this protest, uh, what should we expect from your organizations or your movements in the future? What's next? Yeah, so we we always kind of end these actions with chanting, we will be back, because um, that is why we're here. We are doing these actions until Yale meets our, demand, our demands to divest from these unethical holdings. Um, and a lot of it is just using the momentum and um, bringing in people who are excited from seeing the action, answering questions, doing more teach-ins, recruiting more people um, so that our next action can be even bigger until Yale and Harvard divest, honestly. So it's just a lot of continuing to do what we have been doing, just scaling up. Well, thank you both for being on. And a lot of the headlines that I've seen very rarely do I hear any mention of Puerto Rico's debt. So I really appreciate you all and everybody else in the movement bringing attention not only to the issue of us using fossil fuels as a country, but to not to help us not forget that little island off the coast, the attention that is needed for that island, for the Boricuas there. I mean, we all, similar to what y'all have done, if you're not able to be on the field, you're able to support from the stands. We may not be on La Isla, but we're able to support from afar. And any attention that we can bring to the injustice that people are going through is a win. And the more we, we keep saying, well, we, we will be back, we will be back, 
letting people know we're, we're going to put it on their radar and we're going to keep people accountable for this stuff. So hopefully this is just one of many protests to come from y'all. Um, and you got a supporter here in Chicago. So thank you all for your work. Thank you so much for having us on the show. Gracias once again to Adriana Colón Adorno y Gabriela Morales Nieves from the Yale Endowment Justice Coalition for being on the podcast today. I'll make sure to include in our show notes details on how you can keep up with their movement and follow up on what we discussed here today. I am very much looking forward to seeing what they and other student orgs will accomplish as they work towards the canceling of holdings in Puerto Rico's debt and divestment in fossil fuels from their respective universities. If there is anything you can take away from today's episode, it's this. You have the power to organize for justice. Sometimes that starts out as a simple one-on-one -on -one conversation that can expand to 10 people, then 50 people, then 100. And before you know it, you have a whole crew of people willing to work towards the same cause together. Also, if you ever talk to people about this protest, remember not to forget Puerto Rico in the discussion. We have the power to educate one another on the realities of La Isla. Let's not let those one-on-one -on -one conversations go to waste. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show... Connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at paseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we'd love to hear from you. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I will be taking December off because of the holidays, as well as taking time to study for my master's program, but between now and then, I will be dropping bonus content. So keep your eyes locked on the Baseo podcast for new content as it becomes available. Until then, thanks for downloading this episode. I'll see you in the new year. Happy holidays, happy new year, and cuídate.